Paul, do you know what the term is used to describe the Hebrew canon? There we go, Tanakh, very nice. Uh, Dennis, what are the three parts of the Tanakh? The first part. There's the first part. Yeah, followed very right. Followed closely by the second part. Very good. Yes. Okay. Well, that's which. Where does that fit? Where does profit fit in the three? Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll, we'll give that to you then. Uh, Wayne, what are help Dennis out? You're his lifeline. Three parts to the Tanakh. There we go. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Remember, frequently in the New Testament, you'll hear um, the law and the prophets. That's uh, kind of shorthand for referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. Sometimes, I think Jesus, uh, I don't think, I know, Jesus at one point says uh, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That, too, is a reference to the entirety of the Hebrew canon. So law, prophets, and writings. And then, of course, we have our prophets divided into two parts. Rob Roy, what's our two parts for prophets? Uh, the prophets, uh, one of them is the uh, former and the other is the latter. There we go. Yeah, no, I'm not repeating that. Um, the former and the latter, very nice. Uh, Cindy, this is the tough one. The, the, the writings divided in two, you know, half of them are, any, any guess? That's okay. That's okay. How about you guys? Uh, Carol, what do you got? There we go. Pre-exilic, post-exilic, right? Now, all this stuff, hopefully, I know these are just words that we keep repeating, but hopefully, as we're looking, I keep giving you um, the last several weeks this stuff here with the divided kingdom. You're down here at the exile, and we're going to spend more time on that today. These terms are more meaningful to you so that when we get to them, you realize how packed a lot of this stuff is into the end of the divided kingdom because some of it is right before the exile, some of it's after the exile, and so you're able to divide some of those things up in your mind. So that's why, hopefully, it's not just a matter of being able to fill in the blank on a, uh, on a quiz question, but actually, as you're reading, you're associating time periods and going, oh, wait a minute, they're saying all this before the exile even happens or after it's already happened. So, um, okay. Jane, who, who are our three main characters from Samuel? Samuel? Uh, I couldn't hear you, Samuel. Correct. Uh, no, no, close. Samuel, Saul, and David. Yeah, Samuel, Saul, and David. And then the three notable divisions of kings, which altogether kings... John, do you want to give it a shot? Okay. No, no, no. That uh, no. Who's the main guy, basically, in Kings coming out of the shoot? Uh, Solomon. So Samuel, Samuel. We had Samuel. Saul and David, and then when you get transitioned into kings, you're now moving into his son, Solomon, and does Solomon start well? Yes. yes. So we have that first of the three divisions are the golden years. 
Temples being built, Solomon's given wisdom, gold, 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 silver was counted as nothing. I mean, we're talking about the golden year, like quite literally the golden year. So um, it is wonderful. And then what are the next two divisions? Divide, right, then the kingdom divides. No, no, how does it get even worse? After divided, it, it, yes, exile, thank you. There we go, golden years divided kingdom, and exile. So when you look at the entirety of kings, so what we today look at call first and second kings, you're looking at that, um, what starts out well, strong, and then ends horribly. And um, that's that uh, progression there. Um, all right, anyone feeling bold? Anyone feeling spicy? The latter prophets were... The latter prophets were also known as, go Dennis, good, the writing prophets, the writing prophets. And Dennis, uh, wow, look at this guy, I wasn't going to go there, but I like it. So the other ones are the doers, right? And you got the writing. And then what was really the purpose of the writing? Yes, documentation. They're, 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 they're putting it down because really it's serving as a witness against them. I actually read a, another a way of describing it earlier this week. I'm like, oh, that's good too because I talked about the transparencies and everything and how they're happening. And uh, basically it's serving as commentary. It's almost like when you're watching those movies and even though you're watching it unfold in the narrative sense, like The Princess Bride. There's probably a good sermon illustration from the Princess Bride in like every sermon. Anyway, uh, in The Princess Bride, you, you have the, the story unfolding, but you also have a narrator, right? Um, James, what's, yeah, anyway. Anyway, you have the narrator also talking about it in the background. So um, that's what's going on in a sense of those two things happening simultaneously. Uh, vague bonus question, what does former and latter not refer to? Chronology, very good. Just because it's former doesn't mean it happened prior to. That's what I was just saying, the overlap. Um, okay, now we're getting to the more, two, two most recent weeks. All right, we slid into Isaiah, um, which was the first of the latter prophets. And the two overarching themes of Isaiah and really probably applies to all of the latter prophets. Glenda answered correctly last week. Anyone else? The two overarching themes of pretty much all the prophets. Go ahead, Wayne. Uh, yes, desolation and restoration. Right? Desolation and restoration. Okay, and then lastly, last week we were looking at Jeremiah. And what did, Jer what, what did God, through Jeremiah, bring against his people? What, Jeremiah served as a as a prosecutor, and we looked at a particular word that was used that's translated a couple different ways in, the, in our English translation, but essentially it means that God brought a what? A lawsuit. God brought a lawsuit against his people. He was bringing, yes. And remember then, even though he brought the lawsuit, we looked at the fact that he kind of gave them an opportunity for a settlement, if you want to look at it in civil terms, or a plea agreement, if you want to look at it in criminal terms. Um, he offered them... Hey, by the way, this is what's happening, but here's your last ditch. You know, you're in the courtroom, but the attorneys meet in the back before they actually go in front of the judge, that kind of thing. That's essentially what God is doing and saying, okay, before the gavel hits, before um, 
conviction and sentencing has taken place, I'm going to give you one last shot at a plea agreement, which of course is repent and turn, and they didn't take it. They said, thank, they, no, they didn't say thanks, no thanks. They just said no thanks, uh, or no, probably. No, I don't think thanks was involved. Uh, and they were complete and utter, utterly rebellious. Uh, the last thing that is really important to remember out of Jeremiah, and um, I talked about the cinnamon roll, right? And so what is at the center of Jeremiah and that chiastic structure that is the sweetest part that, get, that reminds us of future, reminded them of a future hope that we now experience. Rob Roy read it at the very end. Uh, the new covenant. The new covenant. So remember, if you can, Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. So when you have Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, that is the, those are the clearest verses essentially in the Old Testament that, that refer to the new covenant. Of course, all of it is pointing to it in some way or another, but when you're talking about some very clear language, you're looking at Jeremiah 31, 31. So something to remember that's right there in the middle of Jeremiah. Okay, today we're sliding into, we're, get, we're nearing the end of our latter prophets. We only have today Ezekiel and then next week is the 12. We're actually covering all 12. And uh, that'll be fun. Um, but today we're looking at Ezekiel. The title Ezekiel, his name means God strengthens. The author is Ezekiel. And just like we saw in the other books that the author states hey, that, that he is that person, that he is the author right at the beginning. And he, the same thing happens in the very first uh, opening verses of Ezekiel as well. So there really is no question about who the author is of Ezekiel. And then here are the dates. Now again, I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to spend even more time on it today. It's not that I expect you to remember, or, or that somehow it's important to regurgitate that, that he ministered, that he prophesied from 593 to 571 BC. However, this becomes really helpful and important in a historical sense. So I want to talk about the history a little bit, which is why I have listed on our board here um, some dates that are over here. So, um, in, so if, you, if you want to grab, just so that you can have a point of reference, all right, look at your little divided kingdom handout there, and we're going down to the bottom, and essentially where all this business starts is where you see Josiah. So the one, two, three, four, fifth, fifth from the, the bottom, uh, uh, kings of Judah there. And, and essentially Josiah is the uh, king of Judah at the time. He decides that he wants to take on Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, Pharaoh Necho. And so Israel or Judah goes to battle against, um, against Egypt. And Josiah's, if you remember the account, Josiah was told, hey, don't go. And he's like, yeah, but I kind of want to kind of want to see what's going on. I want to go, go out there. You remember what happens? <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he had a random arrow, right? Goes up, bloop, kills him, all done. Which, by the way, just as a, as a side note, it's amazing. I was, um, I know I was talking to, I think I was talking to PJ about it when we were traveling a short time ago and I was talking to Glenda about this when we were traveling. And uh, the idea that we feel like we're so safe and that we have things in control 
And at the time, we were talking about it in reference to 9-11 and how on September 10th, 2001, you know, there was, I'm sure, a sense that we're very safe and we're very strong in our military and our technology and everything. And then some guys with box cutters, and you know, it took, it took such low tech to, to create such havoc. And that same thing occurred to me when I'm looking at this and, and I'm confident, obviously, King Josiah thought, had certain thoughts about the strength of Israel and that he wanted to take on Egypt. And all it took was a random arrow flying through the sky, of course, random, uh, quotes, random, flying through the sky, it goes through his armor and kills him on the battlefield. And so what ends up happening is right here at uh, 605 BC is you, then Egypt essentially wins, right? Egypt, because Pharaoh now, Pharaoh now uh, has defeated it gets credit for defeating Josiah. So at this point, Judah is acting as a vassal state. They're subservient to. They haven't been wiped out. They haven't been carried off in exile or anything like that. But basically, they are subservient to Egypt. And then after Josiah is dead, so looking at our little list here, then his son Jehoahaz fills the gap. He only lasts three months, and he's killed. But remember... Egypt is in charge. Well, Egypt installs Jehoiakim, who was originally called Eliakim. Uh, the comment that was made at the very end uh, wasn't right last, last week. Uh, I said something about Zedekiah being Jehoiakim. It was actually Eliakim is Jehoiakim. But in any case, Egypt chooses Jehoiakim to be in charge of Judah. So hopefully you're following this. Judah is still a kingdom. They still have a king. That king is the son of Josiah, but he was chosen by Egypt's ruler because they were actually, um, they had taken control of, um, of Judah at that time. Now, in that first time that Egypt wins, there is a deportation. Nobility is, is taken away. Um, and uh, that is going to involve Daniel. And then we end up getting down here. So at 601, let me make sure I have my dates right here. So at 601, Babylon then, then takes over. Let me hold on. 605. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I, my mistake here. Okay. I, so prior to this is Egypt wins is up here. There we go. Then we have... Babylon takes over Egypt. There we go. So, so after Josiah dies on the battlefield against Egypt, Egypt has control for a very short amount of time, but then Babylon comes in and takes over Egypt. So, in a sense, spoils of war, Babylon not only has control of Egypt, but now they have control of Judah. They haven't destroyed them, they haven't deported them or anything or I mean they haven't driven them into exile, but they do deport some of them, and that includes Daniel. And that's, this is where, in that first wave, Daniel ends up going to Babylon. So they just take some of the best right there in that first wave up here. A few years into this, Jehoiakim thinks, hey, Egypt is still unhappy with being ruled by 
Babylon. We certainly don't like being by, ruled by Babylon. I got a great idea. Let's go rebel against Babylon. So then Josiah right here, or I keep saying Josiah, Jehoiakim right here then decides to take on Babylon and runs into a buzzsaw. God, it says explicitly in Ezekiel that God sent the Syrians, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Chaldeans against Judah. So they get pretty much gutted. All right? So here you have in this time period, now Jehoiakim has been killed, and um, now Babylon, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, who is in charge of Babylon, he's the one that then installs uh, the subsequent king as you move on down, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, and all that. So, this is what I'm getting at. Let me look at my dates here. Is that on, uh, in 598, we have Babylon attacks Jerusalem because now that um, Jehoiakim had taken on Babylon, you can imagine that despite the fact that they lost, that Nebuchadnezzar took it personally. So then later, he comes back and he attacks Jerusalem. And then more people are, uh, are deported. And then finally, in 586 BC, you have the actual downfall when Babylon comes in with a siege all over again and just totally wipes them out. He destroys the city, he destroys the temple, he hauls in mass all but a few of the lowest people, he hauls them away into exile. And now you have the actual exile into Babylon. Now, I, what, this is the reason I'm going through this, is that I, you know, I think what we tend to do is we look at these, you know, these sheets and we just go, okay, kings, and then there's the Babylonian exile, and that's all that happened. But, but in between here, in between Josiah and what, when Babylon comes in in 586 B.C. and completely wipes them out, is you have... Judah continuing to function out of Jerusalem as a nation, but under the control first of Egypt and then of Babylon before that happens. And so it's in that span that Ezekiel is serving and ministering as a prophet. So let's look at what happened here in 586, just so that we have this uh, in our minds. So PJ, if you would read 2 Kings 25, verses 8 to 12. Uh, 25, 8 to 12. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of Yahweh, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were there with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the kingdom, king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Okay, so we're talking about just utter and complete destruction to include the temple. And so I, I meant to, to make this point then, is that in, 
if you followed these dates and you're looking at the dates that Ezekiel actually ministered, where was he when he started his prophetic ministry? He was, he was in Babylon. He was in exile. So his contemporaries are Jeremiah and Daniel, but all three of them at some point in their lives get exiled. Now, I made the point before, Jeremiah didn't because he was trying to, because he predicted that Babylon was going to come in and destroy, that Nebuchadnezzar was nice and left him. So it wasn't Babylon that exiled him, but remember, it's actually fellow Jews that hauled him off to Egypt, even though he didn't want to go. So that's what happened to Jeremiah. But in Daniel and in Ezekiel's case, they were taken to Babylon. And so Ezekiel didn't even begin his prophetic ministry until he was already in exile from one of those first waves of being taken. So anything that he's going to prophesy then is between the dates of people already being exiled, being, being deported, being taken away, and the utter destruction. That's, it's in that span of time there. In fact, he himself didn't even know that all of this had happened, what PJ just read out of 2 Kings 25. And so we have Ezekiel 33, 21. Paul, go ahead. Uh, in, in the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Okay. So it took a fugitive from Jerusalem to, that got to Ezekiel to tell him, hey, just so you know, all of this destruction that we just read about out of 2 Kings 25 had taken place. And so, every, not everything, seven years of what you read, of the, of the 22 years that Ezekiel prophesies, seven of those are in that space between him being deported and the complete destruction and exile or near near complete exile of Judah. And so that helps us kind of classify what's going on here and I think that also helps us realize the 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 pictorial language these incredible visions that take place in Ezekiel all of this is coming to such a head and there's so much judgment taking place that it, it kind of lends a little more credence about to why he is describing things or why God is describing things through Ezekiel in the way that he is. So um, as far as these incredible images that you find through the book of Ezekiel, um, it's been called one of the most enigmatic books of the Old Testament. Here's a quote from Jerome. As for Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, who can fully understand or adequately explain them? The beginning and ending of Ezekiel is involved in so great obscurity that like the commencement of Genesis, they are not studied by the Hebrews until they are 30 years old. Mm. It's like so heavy that they don't even start until they're 30. Which, by the way, the Jews um, at that time, you are not, they would not allow you to become a prophet until you were 30 years old. And Ezekiel was 30 when he, uh, uh, on his 30th birthday, when he was in exile in Babylon, on his 30th birthday is when God called him and, so, and told him that he was going to, uh, to be a prophet. 
I don't know. Possible. Possible priest instead of prophet. But you had to be 30. And it was on his 30th birthday that God called him to be a prophet. Um, so, we have all of this extremely um, fantastic, I guess, might be a way to put it, language in the book of, of uh, Ezekiel. And so what do we do with all that imagery? You know, the wheel within a wheel coming down from heaven, four different faces and um, a throne and fire and all this kind of different thing. Well, there are two ditches that you can fall into when you're thinking about these interpretive approaches. And the two, let's change colors. The two different ditches that you can fall into, the first is going overly allegorical. So that is to say that everything, has, everything is symbolic and in addition to that has like a one-for-one one connection to something else. And usually people associate it with something in their, in their current day. So this is me making something up entirely, by the way. So Ezekiel 1.15 talks about four creatures with four wheels. Um, so, you know, somebody could say, well, obviously we see that in the New Testament there were four men that carried the paralytic and lowered him. And, you know, since in Ezekiel's vision, each of the four creatures had, there was one wheel, so we should go out on unicycles to show love to paralytics. You know, that, it, that I mean, obviously I'm being absurd, but there still are actually some pretty incredible connections that people make by just plucking out pieces of the imagery out of its context and saying, well, see, look at the similarity, therefore, and coming to these pretty wild conclusions that, uh, that really can't be supported, and, and you really have to ask, okay, how did you get here from there kind of a thing. And then the other ditch that you can fall into is being overly literal. Of course, it's an overreaction, basically saying that everything that is written, it, that everything that's going to take place is going to happen exactly as it is written, that there is no symbolism, and that this prophecy is plain speech. And that's just not the way it works, because God communicates in different ways. So let's look for a moment the fact that God just, he communicates in different ways to us. So Glenda, Numbers 12, 6 to 8. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Okay, so here God is the one making the distinction that with prophets he speaks in visions and dreams, and yet with Moses he has a different way of communicating which is much more direct. Um, and so we see that distinction. And then in Ezekiel 17, 1 and 2, we are told how it is that God is communicating with Ezekiel. Go ahead, Jane. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Okay. So Ezekiel is writing that God is telling him to propound a riddle and to solve these puzzles or uh, to hear the parable. So it's clear that God is using imagery, but we have to make sure that we're interpreting that Im imagery correctly and applying it back to the Word of God. And so here's a, a quote that I thought was helpful. 
Um, this is from Ian Duguid. Quote, to sum up then, the message of the prophets in general, and Ezekiel in particular, is not simply instruction addressed to their own day and age. Still less is it a manual to help you interpret current events in the Middle East and work out the countdown to Armageddon. The message of the prophets is Jesus, and specifically the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Thus, when you interpret Ezekiel correctly, without allegory, you will find that his message is not primarily morality or social action or eschatology. His central message is Jesus. Close quote. That was Ian Duguid. And um, to that end, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, Julian. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, and these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay, this if there's any book where you might apply that concept of things which angels long to look, it is the book of Ezekiel. I mean, there's so much stuff going on there. And that First Peter uh, 1, 10 to 12 reference there is illustrating that all of it is, it's worth investigating. And what God reveals to us through those things points ultimately to Christ. It's about Christ. It's not about how does this connect to the technology we have today? How does this connect to the Middle East? How, where does this tie in even to eschatology? Really, um, it's always pointing to Christ. So the short of it is, it's not about us. It's about Christ. Okay, let's look at uh, themes. There were several, but I just boiled it down to two. Um, two themes. By the way, another thing about Ezekiel, he is the guy, man, this is rough. So he's, he's exiled. He's the one that has to do basically like the street theater. Ezekiel's the one that is uh, laying on his side for most of a year, you know, laying on one side, then he has to lay on the other side, then he has to eat food burned over poo. And I mean, he... I mean, he's doing all this stuff, and God told him before he ever did any of it, besides the fact that he had to do all that, told him before, nobody's going to listen to you. I mean, put that into your calculus when you're thinking about your life and what God has given you and the hand that you've been dealt and, you know, all the, I mean, this, this is real stuff. Here's a prophet, you know, a man chosen of God. God has given him visions, and he tells him, by the way, this is, this is how it's going to go down and no one is going to listen to you. Okay, go. <laughs> so, um, all right, one of the main themes of the book of Ezekiel is the glory of Yahweh. And so when we see this um, really vivid imagery taking place, it's essentially giving physical characteristics to the glory of God. So 
that's part of the reason I'm sure that it is uh, so colorful and so difficult to grasp is that God is actually giving physical character, characteristics to his glory. So in those verses, he includes stormy wind, great cloud with brightness, fire flashing forth like gleaming metal. He talks about four living creatures with a human likeness, with four faces and four wings. And it goes on from there. Um, Who's got, who's got my Ezekiel 1, 26? Go ahead, Tammy. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Okay, so we have all of this descriptive language, and we're told it is the likeness of the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh. So um, the, this idea of the personification of God's glory is helpful because of how the visions then unfold. So Ezekiel 10, 18, and 19. Go ahead, Wayne. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes, and they went out with wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Okay, so what that is describing is this, these physical characteristics that have been given to the glory of God. Ezekiel in the vision is watching these physical characteristics leave the temple. So God's glory then in this vision is leaving the temple. And then it gets perhaps even worse, Ezekiel 11, 22, and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the God of the, of the Lord... And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Okay. Now, not only has the glory, now it's that same image that depicts the glory of God. Not only has it gone to the east gate, which is still within the um, borders of the city of Jerusalem. It's just outside the temple. Now, what um, Lita just read, now it's actually left Jerusalem. So this is the vision in that span of time that Ezekiel, during his exile, but be prior to the, uh, the big, the capital E exile of, and destruction of Jerusalem, the glory is gone, left the temple and has left the city. So that's one of the big overarching things that we see um, in a theme, as far as a theme in the book of Ezekiel. Um, here's, a, here's a quote from Michael McKelvey, McKelvey, uh, quote, the presence of God, which comes to dwell in the Mosaic covenant with his people, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, is now departing from the temple, the people in the land, 
Yahweh's departure reveals the extent of punishment that Israel's iniquity has brought upon the nation. With this drastic picture proclaimed to the people, Ezekiel's words continue to indict Jerusalem until the city falls. Without the presence of God, they are completely lost. So, it, and isn't this incredible, is that the people, if you think back to the time, uh, like with Samuel and everything, remember how the people tried to use the Ark of the Covenant as like a, a, a rabbit's foot, like, hey, this is our, because we have God, God is like somehow so connected to this that as long as we bring the Ark with us, we're going to be fine. And it, it didn't work out that way at all. And yet here we have a, almost the converse where now you have God in a, in a kind of a physical way through this vision is demonstrating, yeah, but I am leaving you physically, like, I'm out. You don't get to tell me, but I get to decide, and he's deciding because of your sin and violating the covenant. I am both out of the temple, and I have left. And in fact, he's headed east, which is towards Babylon. And it's Babylon that becomes his tool. And a lot of the stuff that PJ is preaching through is now, in a sense, the handiwork of God using them, because God picked up, left town, headed for Babylon. Okay, however, conversely, the glory of uh, the Lord will return. Ezekiel 43, verses 3 to 5. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the chamber canal, and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, so we're talking about a future when the glory of the Lord fills the temple and kind of curious, did you notice the glory comes back in through the, catch it, anyone catch it? Through the east gate, same way left. So uh, we read that the spirit, that the glory of God left out the east gate, then he left to the east from Jerusalem, and then we, uh, Ruthie just read how it is going to return back in through the east gate into the temple. The other overarching theme we see is kind of a creation, decreation, recreation, which is this exact same thing we saw. And um, it parallels Genesis chapters 1 through 3, where obviously you have the account of creation, and then you have uh, the fall and what takes place there, and then you have the promise of a future recreation, and we kind of see that throughout the entirety of Genesis. Um, I'm not going to go through the... Um, structure that you have on your handout there. You can see that it's broken up essentially into three parts and the pattern is from cursing to blessing or to use the language we've been using which is from desolation to restoration. Um, a couple other items of note um, that I think are, are, are good to uh, be aware of is that the term son of man, God refers to Ezekiel as son of man 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. So in doing that, you know, he's reiterating the fact that he is a frail man, that he is a son of man, he is, he is human, and that he needs God, he needs the spirit, the empowerment of the spirit. And so he is saying, you son of man, and then he delivers his spirit-filled message to that, uh, to that son of man. And what it also does is it starts making connections, or, to, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Nick has used the, the term hyperlink um, before. So what, what's happening now is you have Ezekiel that's kind of laying this groundwork so that when you read Daniel and you read Revelation, you can kind of see a lot of these connecting points um, 
that, that find some uh, roots in Ezekiel as well. I want to close with uh, the distinctiveness of God's people is based on the presence of God. You know, so this connects to this whole idea of, of Yahweh. So um, we're actually going to look at this concept where it is written in Exodus, Exodus thirty three sixteen. Go ahead, Clayton. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and, and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Okay, so that is Moses communicating to God, saying, how will we be any different from everyone else in the world unless you are with us? It's God's presence that separates God's people from everyone else. And when you realize the importance of that and you connect it to the glory of Yahweh saying, you know what, you're on your own. You want to be on your own? He turns them over and lets them be on their own. And then, of course, how that turns out, they get destroyed um, and taken off into exile. But then, praise God, as you continue through the book of Ezekiel, you get to that final chapter. And the final uh, chapter of Ezekiel is about the hope for all of creation. And in chapter 48, the final chapter, it describes what that eternal Edenic city, that meaning, you know, that, that parallels in a sense, but is better um, kind of Eden will be like. And, and then we read the final verse of the entire book, and that's Ezekiel 48, verse 35. Go ahead, Jess. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Okay, so we didn't take the time to read all of the last couple of chapters, and then especially as it culminates in 48, but it's describing, you know, that, that image of this new city, and the new city is not called Jerusalem. It's called the new city because it's going to be better. And it ultimately, at the end there, that final verse that Jasmine just read, is going to be called, is going to be referred to as God is there. That is our hope, that we are, that God is there with us or that we're there with him, residing with the glory of God. So, wow, that is a ton of stuff. I know it's a lot to kind of absorb. Um, I really think that it's helpful, and I, hopefully I haven't totally goofed up the, uh, the historical stuff because it was a lot of information to, to kind of digest, but I do think that it is um, meaningful as you read through these books to realize how everything's coming to, um, to a climax in Ezekiel's prophetic ministry leading up to that, that desolation of Israel, and then he, he gets the opportunity to continue to prophesy after it takes place as well for a while too. So that's where we are. Any? We got a minute for any observations or comments? Just a quick question, um, and maybe there's not time to get into this. Uh, and I understand if there's not. Uh, son of man, that term. Yeah. So obviously that's the term used for Jesus in the New Testament as well. Um, is other than this referring to um, the frailty of Ezekiel and then the frailty of, you know, Christ's body as human, right? Are there other uh, 
Can you give us any thoughts on that in summary? I mean, is this a one-to-one, like, are these terms, because here you're dealing with the term in the Hebrew and then in the New Testament it's in the Greek. Are they, is this a one-for-one translation, like son of man? And I don't know, any thoughts on that or where we could go to, to yeah, study it that? Is, yeah. I mean, they are, both are expressly son of man for sure. Yeah. And I think that it is a multifaceted deal. So you have the aspect of Christ's humanity, his frailty, and, and, it, and the fact that Jesus you know, he took on flesh, you know, it's just basically being repeated, repeated that he is the incarnate son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what you also have, and I'm sure what uh, PJ will spend more time as he proceeds through Daniel, is you have these intentional turns of phrase that Jesus, by saying that, is not only saying, hey, I, I have chosen to become the incarnate uh, God, the God-man, to walk the earth, but by me saying this, I am connecting the dots to this theme of the glory where we see it so frequently re, uh, connected to the Son of Man in Ezekiel, and then certainly in the things that we see in the book of Daniel as he, uh, as the Son of Man enters, you know, the court, the Ancient of Days, and everything like that. So yeah. he's doing awesome things. Yeah. He, with a phrase, he's doing that and I'm sure much more than what I'm saying. Wow. He's packing it all in and communicating all of that by just referring to himself as son of man. Thank you. Yeah. Jamie. No, close. Is the Im- imagery that we see in Ezekiel that seems to correspond with Revelation um, actually corresponding? So for example, the appearance of Jesus as metallic gleaming? Uh, I can't speak to the metallic gleaming. I don't, I'm not that familiar with it, but yes, I think there's no question that there are some very direct connections. And, and we know that all of this is pointing forward to Christ, and so it's um, incumbent on us then to look at Revelation to see how that applies to our perseverance until he returns. You know, but, so... Yes, that's the short answer. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for our time for this class, and thank you that we get to come here in the house of God to worship. We pray that you would bless every aspect of the service, from from the first initial time of silence and um, uh, call to worship all the way through the hymn of proclamation. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.